This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Starships XL Editions, a special series of large format ships officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and receive the USS Enterprise D for 20% off the regular price and with free shipping. For details and to order, visit st-starshipsxl.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 259, Journey's End. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Cam Ray. Each week, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart from messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether the whole thing holds up. This week, Journey's End, the one where the Federation abandons a colony, and Wesley Crusher finds himself... Oh. Finds himself where? Well, yeah, well, yeah, that's that's like a whole other question for a whole other episode, my friend. Okay, all right, gotcha. I've got trivia coming up in a bit, but first... But first, a word from Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Starships XL editions. You ask for bigger starships... Eagle Moss delivered. Okay, Eagle Moss will deliver as soon as you ask them specifically for you. Fans asked for bigger ships, and that's what they got with the XL editions. Officially authorized by CBS Studios, these ships sail from every corner of Star Trek. That's all the Star Trek TV series and all the movies from Star Trek The Motion Picture all the way through Star Trek Beyond. Can I just say very quickly before I get to the nuts and bolts of this that anytime somebody comes in and sees these starships sitting on my desk, mm-hmm. that's just the first thing that they want to look at, touch, play with, and ask about. Yeah, you're talking about yeah. the, the bigger. You're talking about the XL. Well, I've got the XL. I've got the XL center stage right now. That's okay. like right there in the middle of the desk. Okay. So each XL edition has gone through extensive reference study and has been reproduced under the supervision of Star Trek expert. Don't don't take that title lightly. Star Trek expert. Ben Robinson. Ooh, he's good. He is good. He's so much so he's an expert. Yeah. <laughs> and um, these ships are among the largest starships ever produced by Eagle Moss, offering the ultimate in detail and craftsmanship. We've talked about how much detail there is on the teeny tiny starships. Well, when they're not so teeny tiny, the details really can shine. Each ship is die-cast, it is hand-painted, and comes with an in-depth magazine featuring meticulously researched info and artwork highlighting the ship's history, design, and onboard technology, along with crew and weapons. And, and, yes, each one comes with a special collector's stand. Now, there are two ways to get in on this action. I'm going to tell you one. You can subscribe risk-free. You start with the 8.5-inch XL Edition USS Enterprise NCC-1701D. Oh, man, not many more flights for the D, John. Mm -hmm. Not many more Mm -hmm. flights, as far as uh, Mission Log is concerned, anyway. Of course, we can always go back and listen to old episodes of Mission Log. Or, you know... Start that right now. (laughs) Or we can actually watch old episodes of Next Gen. Anyway, you start with the NCC-1701D for 20% off the retail price, plus free shipping. Now, you'll also get three exclusive free gifts worth $100 as part of your subscription, which you can cancel at any time. If you don't, additional ships will arrive every other month for the same 20% off with the same free shipping. 
So that's the first way that people can get these ships, John. What's another way? Oh, my turn. We got another option here. You can just buy the ones you want. Pick and choose your favorite XL Edition ships online and pay the regular price. In addition to the Enterprise D, other XL Editions now available include the original USS Enterprise in CC-1701, the Enterprise E from the Next Generation movies, and just added the 22nd Century Zone Enterprise NX-01. So the choice is yours. Just visit st-starshipsxl.com and make it so. <laughs> yeah, you see the right? Yeah, got it. There's a little in-universe humor there. That's st-starshipsxl.com. And as always, a big, big thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. We are mere moments away from John Champion's trivia, but before you get there, we're going to get here, the part where I tell you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail... We would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And you say, well, what if some of those comments are trivia? Well, I hope they're not for Journey's End because John's got that handled. In fact, let's go ahead and let John handle that right now. All right. Well, thank you, Ken. Trivia for today's episode, Journeys, and it was written by Ronald D. Moore. Hey, is that a surprise and introspective family-driven drama that reveals uh, deep character insights? No, I didn't think it was a big surprise. Um, Ron is really the one who pushed for this focus on Wesley leaving Starfleet. Uh, he felt like there hadn't been enough exploration of people who just sort of figured that that life wasn't for them. So why not explore that with Wesley? But the story was actually originated by Antonia Napoli and Sean Piller. Wait, another Piller? You might be asking yourself. Yes, Sean is Michael's son. And Sean would have been about 21 at the time this was written. And this was his first professional writing credit. And he's gone on to work consistently as a producer and writer in TV. And we will see more from him in Trek coming up. This was also Antonia's first TV writing credit, and she racked up just a couple more credits, uh, this being her only trek. Today's episode is directed by Corey Allen. There's a name from the past. We haven't had Corey direct an episode since way back in Season 5, another one where Wesley visited, and that was The Game. Of course, Corey kicked it all off by directing Encounter at Farpoint. Hey, shout out to Dr. Fassbinder. Yeah, right? We remember him. He was that, uh, right? The professor. No, I kept... don't remember Fassbinder. You don't? You don't? Fassbinder, uh, Picard describing him talking and what incredibly unbroken sentence oh. jumping from topic to topic. Okay. Yes. I, I, I was trying to figure out why we would know him from Starfleet, but we don't. He was at that uh, conference that they all went to and then made fun of people and then they got stuck in various pockets of time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Good job. Thanks. Um, another uh, reference here. Redress of that set from thine own self making an appearance here. Science! <laughs> and um, we have a deleted scene. Uh, there's a scene early in the episode where Picard shows up at Wesley's quarters, uh, lets himself in, and Wesley's asleep. And 
He's a bit surly, but uh, Picard comes in anyway, and Wesley makes himself a cup of coffee, and then Picard asks Wesley about Boothby, and Wesley's like, yeah, I haven't seen him in a while. And uh, kind of kind of a downer. That's about it. So <laughs> they cut that scene out of the episode. Now, a whole lot of guest stars to talk about. Uh, we have a lot of people that we are welcoming back, like uh, Natalia Nagulich as Admiral Necheyev. Of course, welcome back to Will Wheaton as Wesley. And hey, we even get Doug Wirt back as Wesley's dad. And of course, Eric Menyuk as the Traveler. But wait, we have some new people too. Lakanta is played by Tom Jackson, singer and actor who may be best known from children's television series like Shining Time Station. He was born in Saskatchewan in the One Arrow Reserve, and he has a number of credits in Canada, including a long leading gig on North of 60, and that would be in addition to a lot of albums that he released as well. Now, Ned Romero plays Anthwara. Uh, worth pointing out here that his career started in the early 60s, and he appeared once before in Trek in the TOS episode, A Private Little War. In addition to his many guest and recurring appearances all over the TV landscape, including a lot of westerns, he will be back in an episode of Voyager as well. George Aguilar plays Wakasa. He started his acting career in the early 70s, and this is his only Trek appearance in addition to many TV guest spots and a handful of feature film roles. He appeared in The Scarlet Letter, the uh, 1995 version with Demi Moore, uh, Baghdad Cafe, and Almost Heroes, alongside Chris Farley and Matthew Perry. And yeah, yeah, I specified that because, you know, you might be thinking, oh, Almost Heroes, did I see that? And then I remind you that it had Chris Farley and Matthew Perry, and you remember that, no, you did not see that, or you struck it from memory. Finally, our Cardassian Gull Evac is played by Richard Poe. Now, he's turned up mostly in TV guest roles and a handful of recurring roles, including, oh, I, I don't know, uh, Star Trek? Yep, uh, Gull Evac has actually already appeared on Deep Space Nine as of the premiere of this episode, and he'll be back on both TNG and Deep Space Nine then making an appearance on Voyager in their pilot episode. For the first 20 minutes of this episode, every bit of hatred you have ever felt for Wesley Crusher is completely justified. Prologue. Wesley Crusher is back aboard the Enterprise, and something is obviously bothering him. Well, obvious to the viewer anyway. He's going through the motions of being friendly to Geordi and Data and his mom. But really, he seems down. Act 1. Wes wasn't the only person coming aboard the Enterprise. The ship has also picked up Admiral Necheyev. Ah, uh, these meetings are always tense. But Picard has decided to make her feel welcome. And the effort doesn't go unnoticed by the Admiral. Of course, it is still Admiral Necheyev, and her news is still bad. The Federation has just wrapped up negotiations with the Cardassians. A demilitarized zone has been created. New borders have been drawn. Planets that used to be under Federation control will soon be under Cardassian control and vice versa. All of that's actually good news. But the inhabitants of these planets will have to be moved to the proper sections of space, and that includes the colony of people originally indigenous to North America that have settled on Dorvan 5. That's right, it is Picard's job to kick the Native Americans off their land. Needless to say, he's not happy. The people of Dorvan 5 left Earth 200 years ago, looking for a place where they could preserve their cultural identity. Once more, they are being asked to leave their home because of a political decision that's been taken up by a distant government. 
bonk, bonk. Nechayev actually gets Picard's argument. Heck, she made the same argument herself before the Federation Council. At the same time, she's dismissive. The colonists were warned when they settled on Dorvan 5 that it was a planet hotly contested by the Cardassians. Anyway, this deal's been made. Go talk the colonists off of Dorvan 5. If they won't leave willingly, take them off. Nechayev thanks Picard sincerely for making her feel welcome on the Enterprise. And she's off. Wesley, meanwhile, is being a jerk. Seriously. Geordi shows him a modification he's made in engineering, and Wes stops just short of making fun of it and the engineer. He's gone away. He's learned many things. Manners, not among them. Wes starts telling Geordi exactly why Geordi's idea is stupid, but Geordi dismisses the cadet instead. Act 2. Picard and Troy are meeting with the leaders of the colony on Dorvan 5, they say they know three planets pretty close to here, totally uninhabited, similar to Dorvan 5, where they would be happy to resettle the settlers. And if those don't work, we'll be happy to keep looking for a planet that will work because we really want for you to be happy. Somewhere else. Their leader, Antoara, says it's not about a similar planet. The skies of this planet, its mountains and waters. They welcomed him when they got here 20 years ago. Picard says he respects their beliefs. So then, says Antoara, you get why this place isn't just a place. It's spiritual to us. It took us nearly 200 years to find home. They don't want to spend another 200 years looking for what they already have. Troy has an idea. Let's stop for now. And pick up again tomorrow. Antoara agrees. In the meantime, he's happy to accept an invitation for him and his council to dine this evening on the Enterprise. Speaking of the ship, that's where Wes is getting a serious talking to from his mother. You know, she says, you're being kind of a jerk. He says he doesn't need her telling him how to behave, and she's like, well, you shouldn't need me to tell you how to behave. I mean, hello, fourth-year Starfleet cadet. But he says maybe he's tired of following everybody's rules before storming out of the room. He doesn't storm straight to the colonist reception. He's actually late to that. That's cool, though. It gives us time to listen in on Picard and Antoara getting to know each other. Each sees where the other is coming from on the issue of relocation, though neither is so understanding as to change their position. But they'll keep talking, each learning of the other's history. When Wesley finally shows up, he's approached by one of the colonists of Dorvan 5. This man, Lakanta, says he's known that Wesley was coming to the colonists for the past two years. He saw it in the Habak where he had a vision quest, and he knows why Wesley is here, to find the answers he seeks. Act 3. Beverly's talking to Picard about what a total jerk her son is being. It's worse than what's happening on the ship, though. Beverly called Starfleet Academy. Wes is actually in danger of flunking out. She wants Picard to talk to Wes, though Picard says that would probably just push him further away. He's got to work this out for himself. Wes is doing that on Dorvan 5. Lakanta is there, talking to Wes about what is sacred. It's everything. The dirt, the food, the buildings, the people. Wesley. Wesley is sacred. The idea seems to sort of stun Wes, but there's more. If Wes is not treating himself as sacred, he's desecrating the sacred. When he acknowledges that he's not been treating himself as sacred, 
Lakanza figures it's time for West to go on a vision quest of his own. Meanwhile, the negotiations have taken their seemingly inevitable course. The colonists will not go willingly, so Picard will have to remove them by force. But Antoine says Picard won't do that. You see, it turns out that in the late 1600s, one of Picard's ancestors led a party that fought and killed, savagely killed, a number of Antoine's ancestors. He's of the belief that the universe has brought Picard here not to remove the colonists, but to erase the blood stain that his family has carried for over 700 years. A shaken Picard heads outside, only to find something even more startling. Cardassians. Act 4. Yeah, Cardassians are a little early here. Planet's not supposed to be turned over to them for six weeks. Picard says their arrival may upset negotiations, but Gull Evesque, the leader of the troop, is like, um, negotiations? This is our planet. What's to negotiate? He's there for a preliminary survey and won't leave until it's done. Fine, says Picard, but for now, this is still a Federation planet, and I will protect these people. How about we check on Wes and his vision quest? In the Habak, Lakanta tells Wes that there's really no difference between anybody. Vulcans, Klingons, Ferengi. It's really all the same. He tells Wes to start a fire, stare into it, and wait to see what he sees. Back aboard the Enterprise, Picard is once again arguing to Admiral Necheyev to reopen negotiations over Dorvan 5, to leave these people be. Necheyev says she made that request again just a couple of days ago, but this planet will be turned over to the Cardassians. So get the colonists gone. Picard is worried about repeating his family history of slaughter against Antoire's people, though it could happen if the colonists take up arms against the Enterprise crew. He asks Worf to begin making preparations. Back in the Habak, an exhausted Wes receives his vision. It's Jack Crusher, his dad. You've reached the end, Wesley, the end of this journey. You've been on a journey that wasn't your own. Now it's time to follow your own path. Goodbye and good luck. And with that, the vision ends. Outside, Wes sees Worf working on a plan to beam the colonists off the planet, against their will if necessary. Saying to Worf, we can't do this, Wes begins warning the colonists, yelling about what the Starfleet officers plan to do. The colonists tell Worf and company to leave. Now. Act 5. Okay, now Picard will talk to Wesley. What the hell? Wes says that what's happening on Dorvan 5 is wrong. He knows that Picard was given orders by Necheyev, and she was given orders by the Federation Council, but it's still wrong. Maybe, says Picard, but as long as you wear that uniform, you will conform to Starfleet rules and follow Starfleet orders. So Wesley quits. Saying he's resigning from the Academy, Wes takes off his communicator, and he's out. Of course, Beverly would like an explanation. She says she deserves it. Okay, basically, Wes has been following in Jack's footsteps without ever wondering whether he should. But as time wore on and graduation drew closer, more and more he knew that Starfleet wasn't for him. He never said anything because he didn't want to let anyone down. Not Picard, not Beverly, not himself. But when the vision of his dad said, you can go your own way, everything just made sense. Beverly seems to get it, and she's reminded of 
the Traveler. You remember him, guy from Tau Ceti, could sort of go all over space and time. He told Picard way back in season one that Wes was destined for great things. Maybe this is the start of that. Back on the planet, Cardassians, Starfleet, and the colonists are at serious odds. Armed colonists have taken a couple of Cardassians prisoner. Picard asks Gull Avec on the Enterprise to talk with Picard to withdraw his people. Gull Avec starts to go the opposite direction, preparing troops to beam in and rescue his people by force. But Picard reminds him that the colonists are Federation citizens. The planet is still under Federation control, and he will protect them. Meanwhile, actual fighting is broken out on the planet. Punches thrown, shots fired, and Wesley stops it. Like, with his mind or something. Yeah, remember all that traveler talk? Wes is on his way to a different plane of existence. This is explained to Wes by Lakanta, who reveals himself to be actually the traveler. He says he didn't do any of this. Wes did this. The traveler opened the door... Wes was the one to walk through it. He's ready now, and the Traveler will be his guide. Wes wants to help the colonists, so the Traveler says he needs to trust them to find their own paths. And with that, time starts again, and people are hurt, maybe killed, and the Cardassians are readying weapons and warming up transporters, though Picard makes one last plea to Gull Evec, and it works. Choosing not to go to war, Gull Avec orders the Cardassians on the surface beamed out, and Picard does the same for his away team. What happens now to the colonists? They're renouncing their Federation citizenship. They'll stay on Dorvan 5. Gull Avec says he thinks he can get the Cardassian government to leave them alone, as long as the colonists leave the Cardassians alone. In finding this solution, Antoara tells Picard that he has wiped clean his family's stain of blood. Also, they're leaving Wesley there. The Traveler says he can learn a lot from the colonists, and with that, Picard wishes Wesley luck. Wes says goodbye to his mother. One to beam down. The end. Hey, uh, you just mentioned something not that long ago. Mm -hmm. Um, You remember way back in season one when the Traveler told Picard that Wesley was special? Yeah. All right. You remember that he told Picard, uh, don't tell anybody, especially his mother. I oh wow I forgot that I know a lot of people weren't supposed to know didn't he tell I want to I want to say he told Beverly at some point though maybe this season did he not mm. really no yeah like maybe in no. attached he didn't tell her during attached mm. Mm. maybe well, maybe maybe she could read that from yeah, maybe she can attached. that's true maybe that yeah. was it because because she was all in his head he was all up in her head that's true. That's yeah. true. Maybe he accidentally, yeah. you know, sort of like how a Vulcan will sometimes leave a little something in somebody else's brain. I, they are prone to do that. Yeah, yes. maybe maybe yes. she there was a little bit left of Picard's brain in her. And she's like, hey, remember that time that guy said that thing? Actually, you don't know about that, Wes, but <laughs> inexplicably, I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the beginning of this episode. Um, did Data come up with that joke on his own? Uh, because, look, just it's not terrible, but I wonder how he came up with it. And and did he practice it? And did he let Jordy know that this was going to be a thing? Did he say, okay, so Jordy, you go in and you say this, and I'm going to follow it with this, and it'll kill? 
<laughs> you know? I like that idea. Yeah. Although I like the fact that it also wasn't a joke that was really played for a laugh. It was more like one of those. Well, I mean, it, it actually, it was as if he was being greeted by Riker. Right. Honestly, yeah. except for the part yeah. where he then went back and explained later, which would be a hilarious mm-hmm. thing for Riker to do. Uh, we're going to have to call oh, security. Be... By the way, Wesley, I'm not really going to call security. I know, Commander. Really? Really? What am I, like an idiot? Oh, yes. It did remind me, though, of the time. Remember when uh, when uh, Picard said, uh, Mr. Data, will you please show uh, uh, Commander Riker to the brig? Right. Because yeah, of whatever it was he had done, I can't remember, took over the ship or something. You know, that happens every other week. All the time. And then, and then uh, Riker's like, Data, you know he was kidding, right? You know he was kidding. As he's being taken off, apparently, to the brig. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we we don't know what happened after that, but somehow they were back next week, and Riker still had his job. Um, I kept thinking in this episode, what if Wesley had just been this surly from the very beginning? Yeah, starting starting with encounter at Farpoint. Okay, two things really quickly. First of all, it was Gambit that that happened, and it was Gambit Part Two. So save oh, your emails ooh. right now. That was yeah, the, nice. It was the Gambits, nice. right? Yeah, all the Gambits. Yeah. yeah, and I guess the question I have uh, for you is, do you prefer um, Surly? Gosh, this would be a good uh, uh, poll question if ever we mm-hmm. did a show that needed a poll, say. That would be nice, yeah. Uh, do you prefer um, Surly Wesley or Ernest Wesley? Because, oh, you know, man. we're Starfleet, we never lie, hurts. Yeah. And it hurts to even remember it. Yeah, And it hurts to say it out loud poorly, but I really don't want to say it the way he said it because it was just too earnest. But at the same time, <laughs> Surly Wesley comes on board and you're like, mm, yeah, can we can we go over something like between the two Wesleys that we've had so far? Like the one that hung out with uh, Loeffler. Uh, yeah, see, and, and where was she in this episode? Because I, I kept thinking this would have been a prime time to reintroduce her into the story. That would have been great. He just would have been a jerk to her, though. Yeah, she's more people to that. be a jerk to. Yeah, no. Yeah, I think he really. I, there was, there was just enough Wesley in this episode. I would say. I just I, look. I'm I'm thinking 15 year old Wesley back at the beginning, and he's just the more we have him in the show over the seasons, like his hair starts to get a little bit longer. He's got some like black eyeliner at some point, and just <laughs> every other line is like, oh, mom. That actually would have been fantastic though if he had come back and he was like emo Wesley. And, like, he mm-hmm. comes on board. He's like, mm-hmm. welcome aboard, young man. Is that patchouli? <laughs> right, right. Is that a clove hanging out of your mouth? Oh. Yeah. Oh. That would have been so good. Poet Wesley is the worst. <laughs> I, I get it, though. Like, I would be upset, too, if I had to wear a turtleneck under a piece of upholstery. Yeah, no kidding. You know, that, that'll just ruin your day. Yeah. So. As soon as they're done, the costume guy was like, okay, I need that back for the floor of my car. <laughs> right, right. Hey, look, uh, I, I didn't take as many notes for our, uh, our our funny decompression that we do now mm-hmm. in, in this part of the show. And I will say this. Uh, sorry to disappoint everybody. I'm not going to get into the food in the Ten Forward scene the way that I normally do. Because I, I watched it a few times and I kept going back and freeze framing. And it basically looked like bread, uh, some cherries, uh, some drinks, and a whole lot of flowers. Oh, you see, I think you're crazy. What? I I love a good flatbread. I seriously love a good flatbread because it's almost like a good pizza, right? Sure. And that looked to me like a really good flatbread Mm. that they didn't even touch. No, well, no, they didn't. They just they kept going for all the weird stuff. I, like, oh, yeah. I made a subspace call to your uh, to your dude to find mm-hmm. out what you like, and I found out you really like this. So here's this, and she's like, "Yeah, you got coffee." <laughs> right, right. That's tea. Actually, it was tea. Earl Grey, hot. Although mm-hmm. you know, it took so long to get to it. It was probably just warm by the time it. Mm-hmm. Did. Mm-hmm. 
Um, another good thing in this episode, I uh, love a good dressing down of Wesley by Picard. It was a good, good moment, you know, because I, I feel like anytime we reintroduce Wesley into the show, he's got to get taken down a notch. So why not just have that in there? But it, then at the end of that scene, Wesley kind of turns the tables and says, well, yeah, I'm going to resign. It's funny to me how every time you need a dramatic moment with a Starfleet officer resigning or, or doing something dramatic, they take off the communicator and put it down on a table, right? Mm-hmm. Now, now, the rank pips are one thing. The uniform is one thing, very, you know, symbolic. But the communicator is a functional tool. So it's like, um, okay, I'm resigning. So uh, now I, I can't get in touch with anyone else on the ship. And uh, the computer will just be confused and point people to find me where the badge is. Do you, suppose, do you suppose there's a way to, like, port your, like, communicator functionality to some other piece of jewelry? Oh, that might be, like, like a casual thing. Like, <laughs> right. uh, yeah. Like, you quit yeah. your job, but you've had this number for years, and so you call your phone company and say, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, need to, I need to keep this number, and HR said it's fine or whatever, but do they have something like that in Starfleet? Right. Well, and then the phone company just says, okay, uh, do you still have the SIM card? And you're like, no, because I left it in the communicator that's on a coffee table that I dramatically put down in front of the captain. You have to understand, I was storming out dramatically. I did not have time to fish in there for the, because what are we using now? We're using like nano SIM or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, you can barely even see the thing for crying out loud. Um, I did, I did, I'll be honest. I'm, you know, part of me is a little kid. When, mm-hmm. when Picard says, as long as you're wearing that uniform, I just wanted Wesley to take off his pants. He's like, you know what? Look at that. I'm not wearing the uniform now, am I? Boom. Well, half of it. You're right. And then he drops trow and walks out. And he walks through the halls and he doesn't care. Because you know no, what? He's right. done with this two-bit organization. Oh. And then, uh, and then he's still got a way to call people because, you know. I yeah, still got the communicator. Still got the right. communicator. Exactly. Yeah. I, it, it was a, a tearful goodbye at the end. And, and they beam Wesley down to the planet. But I thought if Wesley gets to go to other planes of existence, mm-hmm. doesn't he get to come back? Like, couldn't he literally come back whenever and wherever he wanted? You see, I think once he really graduates, like, I don't think the Traveler is such a great pan-dimensional being, honestly. Mm-hmm. Because it seems to me that, you know, you really ought to just be able to be everywhere all the time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Like, um, like Q. And, and it was just like, okay, we're going to, we're going to be on this planet with these colonists, the, the Native American colonists. Like, okay, well, is we're going to go to a, another dimension? Like, well, no, we're just, I've been observing here for two years. And, uh, well, couldn't I have done this with Starfleet? Well, yeah, yeah, but now you're a pan-dimensional being. Well, okay, but they do this in Starfleet literally all the time. Pick a story. Any story. It is a Ronald Moore episode, so, there are a few from which to select. So a moment ago we were talking about Wesley and how they kind of edged him up a little bit. Um, but I, and that's cool. Like, I, 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 I'm glad that when they bring him back, they, they can kind of do some different things with him. But there's another character here that I, I think is worth mentioning. Admiral Nechev, hmm. I, I like that we have her back, and, and I like that they humanized her maybe just a little bit more here. There's some detail, like Picard's making tea. Well, he's not making, he's replicating tea and canapes and all this stuff for her to try, and mm-hmm. and, and it's a little bit of a false start with them. So I, I like that. Um, and there was something that 
I, I sort of kept wondering throughout this episode, and that's for Necheyev, what really is her position on, on this particular mission? Is she, does she actually truly sympathize with what's going on? Or is she just at a certain point detached from it and like, I, I don't care? I mean, she tells Picard, look, I, I don't care. This is the mission. You need to carry out the mission. But I, I, I really did wonder at some point, does she have some sympathy for what's going on? And I don't know why that, that bothered me, but maybe it's because they did humor, humanize her a little bit more where she wasn't just the jerk admiral, mm -hmm. that it felt like there was somewhat of a connection there. Well, she actually said, I mean, unless she's lying to Picard, she actually says that all of the objections that he's bringing up mm -hmm. are objections that she has actually brought up already. He says, you know, we, we shouldn't do this because they've been looking for a home for forever. And they're really just, it really just, if history tells us anything, we're not going to be remembered well for this. Mm -hmm. And the JF's like, yeah, no, I, I, I told the Federation. I know. But mm -hmm. uh, it still has to be done. Sorry. And then he calls back a couple of days later. And he's like, hey, really, we should not do this. And she's like, yeah, I know. Like a couple of days ago, I called the Federation again. And I was like, seriously. So either she's lying to him or, yeah, they're actually uh, they actually are having sort of a meeting of the minds. Yeah. I'll tell you the thing that I wondered, honestly, mm -hmm. are admirals jerks because we all treat them like that. Oh, because she comes in and she's ready to she's like, you know, get out of here, Wes. I'm not Wes. I'm a Riker. Get out of here, Riker. You're dismissed. And then she like comes in and he's like, oh, I made refreshments. She's like, I'll get straight to the point. I'll be. Are those my favorite refreshments? <laughs> right. Do you know right. what I mean? I mean, like the first time and it was actually it was Picard talking to Riker about it. It was when, you know, when Riker was like, oh, she's like, Bleh. I don't like her. Bleh. You know, and Picard's like, yeah, but we got to work with her. So, you know, I'm thinking. Maybe I'll try being nice. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, it was the best uh, It was the best interaction they've had, at least uh, any time we've seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, was, it was good stuff with her and, and a good use of a recurring character who hasn't had a lot to do, but just giving her a little bit more to do. So mm -hmm. that was cool. All right. So one of the notes that I wrote here, and, and this is just, I'm sure, a semantic thing, but it, it, it bothered me enough that I felt like we had to bring it up. Uh, North American Indians. Was this a shorthand in 1994? Um, it's interesting, actually, because you and I didn't talk about this, but I went online to do some reading. Like, if you go back and listen to the, um, if you go back and listen to the recap, I think I said the word Indian one time. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out there are some people who get very upset with saying Native American. Mm -hmm. There are some people who get very upset with the idea of Indian. And then there are some... Um, and and you can say things like First Nations or First People or something like that. The problem that I had is we're actually writing about a people who are no longer on the planet where they were. Well, so well, can, yeah. you even, can you still say First Nation or First People? And can you say Native American or whatever? So what I found actually was there were a lot of people in the reading that I did. There are a lot of people, uh, Native Americans, First First Nation, um, indigenous people to North America, who are fine with the term Indian. And then there are other people who aren't. Yeah. So, well, well, yeah. And that's the thing. I, I didn't mean to drop that in here as like a whole, you know, PC argument thing, because I, I, I'm sure that this is an ongoing debate, no matter what. But but to me, it just struck me as a little odd, because I, I guess for the majority of my life, I, I've heard this sort of transition from 
anything referring to Indian becoming, well, it's Native American. Okay, I, I, I get that and I get why. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it didn't seem like that was the right word for this show either, or the right phrase for this show either, when this is a show where they say like, France, what's a France? What are flags? I don't understand these cultures you speak of, you know? Right. They've kind of made a point of that from the beginning. So uh, yeah, it, it just seemed like kind of an odd... Uh, uh, a, a thing that stuck out to me. Well, you'll be happy to know it wasn't ignorance on the part of uh, the people who are writing Star Trek, because oh, sure. seriously, the stuff that I was reading was, I want to say one of the ones that I read was 2013, is when this was actually a curriculum that was being used for some school system that was actually addressing the fact it's like, yeah, there are lots of different things, and some people are upset about them, and some people aren't. I also read uh, interviews with uh, six different prominent people of these communities <laughs> and and different different answers were different from different people like there are people who don't want to be even be they don't want to be called you know um, first nations or indigenous people they want to be identified specifically by their tribe and so they don't there's nothing there's no bigger thing as far as they're concerned than that and so there's not something that we can just use to lump everybody in together Mm -hmm. Th these mm -hmm. a couple of the people that were interviewed in this piece that I read refer to themselves as the tribe from which they hail yeah and then there were other people who were like, "Yeah, call me an Indian. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. I mean, it's you know, it's a way to it's a way to talk about a group of people that we need to talk about. And you know, as long as it's not being used in a pejorative way, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. you know, then go for it. Yeah, I guess was sort of his take. So interesting to me that um, you know, you know, here we are as Picard describes it, seven hundred years out. From mm -hmm. in the timeline of the show, from some of the worst atrocities that that are, are you know that Europeans inflicted on indigenous people in North America, and um, well, he was talking. I'm sorry, forgive me. He was talking 700 years from his ancestor from, from the the event in 1680. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, 1690. Yeah. 1680 was when they actually had the revolt, and then oh, 10 right, and years then later was when they came back. Yeah. Right when yeah. his ancestor came back and savagely murdered people who were there. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and of course, I continued on for another couple of hundred years. Right. Know. Right. Um, oh yeah, but things are great now, though. Oh, fantastic! I mean, yeah, they continued on for a couple of hundred years. I mean, we're just not doing it with guns for the most part. Uh, at this exactly. Point. Yeah. So then I, I, I wondered, you know, is Star Trek then saying that even in the 24th century that we're still kind of terrible about learning from lessons of the past? Um, that That's a little disturbing. And there's another question in there about if some situations are just completely unavoidable, no matter how hard you try to make them avoidable. But there was this, this line, you know, uh, we search for a home for 200 years. Before the 20 years that they had been settled on this particular planet that they had chosen. So, why weren't the evolved humans on Earth for the last 220 years already doing a better job with the land that we have where the Native Americans lived in the first place? <laughs> it, it, it just, it, it seemed like it, 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 it didn't sit right for me that for a, a future that is discussed mm -hmm. where so many of these problems have been taken care of, the political and social, the religious differences that divide us, the the, the basic things like, uh, uh, you know, food, clothing and shelter, that the, these are these are just a given mm -hmm. that the we've already taken care of these things. And yet, for some reason, starting more than 200 years before this episode takes place, some people had had it enough that they were just like, you know what, we're out of here. 
we're we're going to start over and we're going to go someplace else. Well, yeah, that's a great question, and I wish I could answer that for you. Yeah, well, I don't think there is a good answer. But no, it, I mean it, we it, can make it, up all kinds of science fiction answers sure. if we want to. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, we do know that there is a there's a world war coming in Star Trek. Like, mm-hmm. like from where you and I are sitting right now to the 24th century, we know that there's a world war coming in the Star Trek, you know, timeline. We know that there are warring factions. We don't know what that did to the planet. Yeah. And even if you can go back and remake it beautifully, I mean, th- these are these are people who are said to be so in touch with the, you know, with the world on which they live, with the with that, the sacred nature of everything. Mm-hmm. That even if you like put it back to looking exactly the way it was, is it not possible that something would have died there? If you're going to yeah. be, if you're going to be, you know, that, I don't want to use the term mystical, but if you're going to be that mystical about it or that in touch with sort of the, the, the sacred uh, of everything. And listen, by the way, total white guy talking out the side of my head. I know that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I, there's a lot about this episode that I want to talk about and a lot of it where I'm just like, like, I'll never understand that. I don't even understand. Honestly, I don't even understand community. Because I've lived so many places at this point that no matter where I end up, even if I go back to the place that I grew up, I'm out. I'm I'm from outside now. So I mean, trying to get me to understand, you know, feeling like like the Earth, this particular part of some planet or this particular part of this planet, is a place you know with which you know there's anything a special draw or anything like that for me. I don't even feel that like, you know, just talking to people walking down the street anymore because I've lived too many places, it feels like. Yeah. It's not like I can't talk to anybody. It's not like I don't like people, but I don't understand even that kind of community at this point. I think it's one of the reasons, honestly, that I get so into the whole idea of Star Trek. Because if I find people who, you know, if we reach on Star mm-hmm. Trek, and I don't reach on, on everything with every Star Trek person, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. If, if we reach on Star Trek, then then that's sort of uh, sort of what I've found. So forgive me. I, I, I'm sorry to ask for forgiveness, but if I say anything that, you know, even remotely sounds like, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. No, no, no. I'm telling you, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm working from an episode of TV. Yeah. Well, and look, what's interesting is, that, you know, we, we've seen throughout the Star Trek that we have watched, we've seen all these groups of people and representatives of cultures go out into the cosmos because apparently land is cheap. Yeah. Um, you can go build a Scottish theme park if you want, and you can live <laughs> that way if you want. You can go anywhere. But we're making a case for these Native Americans or in the show, North American Indians who have a deep tie to their land. But again, apparently, even as things got worse, but then got better in Star Trek history, things apparently were so bad or bad enough for some group of people that they had to leave the land that they felt very tied to. Um, whereas other people are just fine with saying like, oh, you know, what would be great is we'll just go to another planet. You want to raise a kid on the moon? Let's go to the moon. You want to go here? We'll go and really think nothing of it. This reminds me of this very interesting conversation from one of our Twitter followers uh, very recently mm-hmm. replying to some comments that I had made in our episode about Homeward. And she was making the case that I, I might have... I'm sorry, can can you remind people what Homeward is? Because I'm having trouble myself, but it's always helpful if you remind people. 
See, Homeward is the one where uh, Worf finds his half, well, not half brother, his stepbrother. Oh, uh, right. Li- living on the planet with the, the Ren Fair. And then uh, they have to, <laughs> the planet is dying. So they watch it die. But secretly, his brother has beamed them up into a holodeck simulation and then take them to a new place. Right. So they have to sort of hide the fact that they're taking them to a new place. So I, I, I had. Uh, I had talked about how and sort of parallel to what you're saying here that personally, I didn't really get the deep tie to the place that to me, mm-hmm. the culture was not the place. The culture was the people, their history, et cetera. And um, she was making the the point to me on Twitter that, it, well, you know, there, there are cultures that are very much defined by the location. Um and I get that. I really do. I understand that that is a point of view. I understand that that is a shared history among certain cultures. It's not one that I share. Like you, our sense of community and place is just very different. I've lived in four major cities since I was born, and I have to say that I think my ability to adapt and acclimate to those places has gone pretty well. Mm-hmm. I, I pretty much enjoy stepping out of the car or the bus or the plane or whatever and just say, oh, look, I'm in a new place that I get to figure out now. Yeah. Um, but I, I get the point that she was making to me that, that this is a culture who felt very tied to their land. And in this place, in this episode, we, we have a culture who is also experiencing kind of the same thing. Now, the interesting question for me is about at what point that one of those outweighs the other, that that the feeling of culture and community outweighs necessarily the feeling of of tie to a place, to a location, especially when it comes to physical safety or preserving that culture. Again, this is not a thing where we're just sort of throwing out an answer saying like, oh, well, it comes at this point. But th- this was the interesting question raised to me by this episode as it was raised by Homeward. Some people, like myself, I think would have no problem saying, oh, wait, there are Cardassians coming and I don't have the protection of the Enterprise or the Federation. See, ya, there's a nice planet way over there that looks good to me. Hmm. Yeah, but as we've established, we're not those people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because like I have, I have, I have a family member who keeps going back to the same crappy little town. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. And and he's lived other places and he's done other things. And when he goes back to that same crappy little town, uh, he complains about it the whole time. But it is the place to which he has drawn. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me why. Um, <laughs> it, that's not a that's not a poll that I have. That's not a that's not a feel that I have. It's yeah. you know, I'll be curious to see where I end up the next time I end up someplace because, <laughs> because where I am right now is not where I'm going to be. I mean, I know that and I don't think, but I don't think I'm looking for a, a specific, you know, well, I don't know what I'm looking for. Maybe I'm like Wesley in this episode, you know, keep you posted on how that goes. Yeah. yeah we'll see. Right. Um, talk to me about Picard's responsibility to Antoira and his people. Yeah. Does he have any? Well, I, I ask myself that a lot. Uh, is there a, generational responsibility mm-hmm. you know can can we ap- uh, apply that to things like reparations mm-hmm. as well for for wrongdoings and you know i the only argument that i've heard that really made sense to me and, and i can't remember who made the argument or where and and maybe this will ring a bell with somebody in our audience and they can share it back to me was saying that 
you know, maybe a, a person or a group now, you certainly cannot pin them as the cause of a situation. But, but in the end, they may still have some responsibility and, and responsibility is different from cause. You can be responsible from simply a moral standpoint, from a human standpoint or, or a cooperative standpoint. If you're in a position of power in, in the way that Picard is in this episode, do, do you sort of inherently morally, humanely have a responsibility to people who don't have power? Mm-hmm. Or who, who need some help at some point. And, and it might just simply be an interesting intellectual historical uh, exercise to say, well, th- th- there's a parallel that, that goes back centuries and generations. And maybe you can come to some agreement that says like, yeah, well, I, I didn't do that. And, and there's nothing I can do about that. But I can recognize that you're in a different place now than is fair. And in the interest of trying to make things fair and make things right, I'm in a position to help out. Mm-hmm. I think that's a reasonable position to take. And and for a guy like Picard, I don't think he's necessarily taking that responsibility personally at that point. It's certainly a very interesting and dramatic reveal yeah. to say that, that you had this ancestor there. But I think Picard can rightfully say, and and maybe it's accepted on the other end to say, like, yeah, look, I didn't do that, and I can't change the past, but I can hopefully do my small part to make your future better. Yeah, I think that's where I am. Like, I, I don't believe that. I don't think that Picard has any more personal responsibility to help Antoara and his people because Picard's ancestor 700 years ago did something. Mm-hmm. I don't think he is personally more responsible. It's interesting to me when when um, when Ben Affleck found out that his, I think it was Ben Affleck, I can't remember, some celebrity found out that his people had owned slaves mm-hmm. several hundred years ago. This person actually worked hard to try to cover up the fact that his family had owned slaves. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. did you own slaves? I mean, and, 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 and I don't understand, like, I mean, honestly, trying to cover it up seems worse to me. I mean, you yeah, go ahead and acknowledge agree. it. You acknowledge that that happened. But that does not mean that you are personally responsible for every evil that's out there. I think the bigger problem that I have is when there's evil out there, we should all be working to make it better. If people have ended up in a horrible situation because of horrible things that were done by people in the past, we should all be working towards that. Picard is not particularly responsible because of his ancestor, but Riker is just as responsible for helping these people as Picard is, as Wesley is, as mm-hmm. as Beverly is, as Geordi is, as everyone is, if they're in a position now of of dire straits, I think. Now, mm-hmm. uh, this gets a little confusing then because these people are sort of putting themselves in the position of dire straits because they were told they shouldn't be there, and now they are there and refusing to leave and all that stuff. But I, I, I understand wanting to uh, tug on Picard's heartstrings because, you know, 23 generations ago, somebody that he's directly related to did a thing. Yeah. But Picard seems to me to be the kind of guy. In fact, I would argue Picard is the kind of guy who all the way through it was like, this is wrong. This is wrong without knowing that he was personally involved. Sure. And then he finds sure. out that he's personally involved. And he's like, well, this is, boy, this is, now it's wrong and ugly. <laughs> but I mean, it's no more wrong because oh, it turns out my my grandfather's grandfather's grandfather. I'm pretty sure that's not twenty three, but my grandfather's grandfather's grandfather was part of this whole thing. Yeah. 
I got another question for you as far as sure. uh, messages in this episode. This is a long segment, by the way, and I'm cool with it because there's no, actually. I'm glad. I don't. We haven't even gotten to whether or not we like the episode. We're not going to for a bit. Um, you you mentioned earlier. Oh, deep introspective. Uh, it must be Ronald D. Moore. <laughs> I, I was talking with a few Star Trek friends the other day, actually, and we were talking about noticing different things about the different writers. Uh, you got oh, Bobby. Wait, Trek pals. I'm huh? Sorry, Trek pal. Trek pals. I guess yes. Yeah, right. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Okay. These right. Well, Good. no, it's funny actually because these are people who were originally Mac pals, but they're mm. also turns out they're also all into Star Trek, and so I Sweet. don't know. But anyway, yes. So they were talking about never having noticed before that certain writers have certain things. You want body horror? You call Brandon mm-hmm. Braga. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about, like, they were talking about uh, Ronald D. Moore. Then I, I expressed a certain amount of frustration about his episodes. Mm-hmm. And they asked me why. And I said, because the man never met a word he didn't like and didn't want to introduce to everybody. <laughs> that said, he does give you a lot to play with. He does give you a lot to think about. And I found myself wondering, who was Wes? To Gene. Now, for people who don't know, um, Gene Roddenberry's full name was Eugene Wesley Roddenberry, right? Mm-hmm. And and can we say what his son's name is? Uh, Rod. Okay. Are we, are, are we allowed <laughs> to say any more than that? Yeah, we are. Okay. So his son's name is Eugene Wesley Roddenberry II. Yeah. Or Junior. So Wesley, Wesley is a name for Gene Roddenberry. And I kind of always thought that Wes was Gene putting himself on the Enterprise in a fun sort of I'm a kid in the candy store kind of way. Mm-hmm. Oh, it is 100%. Yeah. Okay. You say it's 100%, but he already had a son whose middle name was also Wesley. Mm-hmm. Was he also putting his hopes for his son on the Enterprise? Because mm. so, I don't know the answer to that question. But like when Wes... All of a sudden, because when Gene Roddenberry was alive, Wes was on this one track. And then a few years after Gene Roddenberry dies, Wes is, you know, Wes is off on his own now. He's going to go do his own thing instead. And I'm not saying they, they dishonored the Wesley character by changing what Gene wanted. I'm actually just wondering, do we have any idea who Wes was for Gene Roddenberry? Hmm. Well, I mean, uh, from the beginning, I always thought that, yeah, he, he's the representation of Gene as himself, as as this. Yeah, like I said, the, the kid in the candy store. Yeah. You know, that's exactly how I always thought of him. He's also growing up in an ideal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he lives in a, even though, well, you know, I guess it wasn't until Gene died, actually, that Wes started sort of um, feeling the feeling the feels around Jack's yeah. death. Yeah. Well, no, that's not true, because the episode with Jeremy Astor. But that was one that Gene was actually against. Right. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's all coming together now. Well, no, it's not, actually. It could be. It could still be any number of things. That's a thing, right? Because uh, Gene Roddenberry, you know, he had a, he had a couple of... He had, he, had, he had two pennies to rub together by the time Rod was born. Mm-hmm. And so he may have been, like, writing... He may have been writing a future for, for his offspring, for his lineage, where everything's awesome and perfect and great. Or he may mm-hmm. have been just trying to put himself in that fun, happy, fun time. Mm-hmm. And, and and what brought that up for me is I actually like Jack's message to Wes, which I think mm-hmm. can be boiled down to a couple of things. Um, assess and reassess. And don't be afraid to be yourself. Yeah. I had a friend. <laughs> I was on a music video shoot in Boston. 
several years ago, I knew some filmmakers and they needed PAs, which you know what that stands for. And then you know what it actually stands for. (laughs) So we're standing outside and it's like eh, 40 something degrees maybe. And we're basically there to make sure that if the cops come, then we radio upstairs Mm -hmm. so the director can come down because what they really didn't want was the cops going upstairs and busting into a busting into a shoot. And so I'm standing there with my friend uh, who I had actually offered, you know, hey, come be a PA on this thing. And he was one month away from finishing film school. He was one month away from walking and getting his degree for film school. And, and he said to me, if I'm never on another film shoot again in my life, I will be happy. And I'm like, dude, you're about to finish four or five years of study that's going to give you a degree to go do this thing. And he's like, yeah, I know, but I hate it. Wow. I'm like, well, why did you continue? He's like, I didn't know what else to do. And so it's interesting to me. I I love the fact that, you know, maybe he should have been watching Star Trek. (laughs) Because at that (laughs) point, Wes has absolutely known what it is he's going to do. He's going to be in Starfleet. And then he has this vision that's like, okay, well, why? Oh, Mm -hmm. I'm allowed to ask that? I didn't realize, you know. So the whole idea of assessing and reassessing, and then if you find out that the thing that you have expected of yourself or that everyone has expected of you, um, that doesn't actually have to be your thing. It's, it's been your thing to this point, but you know, you're free to go off and do. Uh, you're free to go off and do something else. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't have anything to add to that. I, I, I thought uh, kind of the same thing. There's a sort of trope that you know parents or teachers or or whatever sort of authority or parental figure in a child's life might sort of direct them one way oh you you know you're fulfilling this legacy or this idea that we have for you but then at a certain point the the kid gets to decide for them him or herself what what they're going to do can i ask you the most obvious one sure your dad's doctor yeah was there any expectation that you were going to go to medical school Nope. Oh, okay. Cool. No. <laughs> no. Uh, but here's the thing. I, I always liked that stuff. Yeah. A lot. Mm-hmm. But but it, it wasn't anything that I saw for myself or that anybody saw for me. But I do know people who are like that though. Who who you know if the the mother or father was a doctor or you know the medical profession somehow and then yeah that kid from an early age is just sort of like expected and understood mm-hmm. that they would go to medical school. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be a rock star, mister. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm going to be a doctor, which has probably happened more than more than once. Sure. Um, so I have a couple of endings to ask you about in the uh, in the episode, because there were actually a couple of endings that are interesting, I think. Um, what do you make of Wes and the Traveler just leaving everybody to kill each other? And, and I mean, like, in the middle of killing each other. Ugh. Right. Because oh. Wes is able to somehow magically stop that whole thing from happening. And so there are like lasers still flying through the air and people, you know, yeah, you know, with their fists raised they're, they're gonna, their fists are going to land on somebody's face or something. And mm-hmm. and Wes is like, we have to help them. And mm-hmm. the traveler says, no, we have to let them find their own path. Yeah. You know what the worst part of that was? What's that? OK, so they're already involved. Right. They're, they're already, I'm sorry, you don't get to just pull the plug. Oh, you could argue that Wes started it by saying to everybody, that, wait, people, don't you know? Yes. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I thought that was so, oh, oh, that, okay, if this okay. is the way that the traveler does things, then we're uh, in for a bad time. Okay. Here's the thing, though. You can't say that because, first of all, assess, reassess, and don't be afraid to be yourself and all that stuff. I mean, what Wes mm-hmm. just learned was everybody has their own path. 
right? Now, the other thing is you're going to make that noise, but then you're going to defend the prime directive. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the traveler is working just like the Federation, just like Starfleet. I mean, he's just doing it on a micro scale. He's doing what he's doing what Picard could not do with Sarjenka, right? Like Picard heard Sarjenka's voice, the little girl's voice, and he's like, "Well, now we're boned because yeah. I've heard it now, <laughs> and I got to save her." The traveler, on the other hand, can look at that and go, "Okay, well, let's pretend I'm not here because really, I I may not actually be." And uh, and see what happens, except I won't see it because I'll have my back turned seriously when time unfreezes and somebody does get shot with a phaser. Yes, no, exactly. But, but that's the thing. So, yeah, even if you give the traveler somewhat of a pass and say, OK, well, he's he's this observer. He, he took the guise of somebody in this community and he's been there a couple of years and he's a sort of watching what's going. He's learning about their culture. But I'm sorry when when Wesley shows up and Wesley is a part of the action. Yeah. And and the, the group of people that Wesley is with, they are a part of what's happening here. You don't get to then just like cut and run and say like, oh, OK, well, we caused all of this, but um, that's their problem. <laughs> I think it's horrendous. It's absolutely horrendous. Yeah, that was not the next question that I was going to ask, but I do have to to actually ask a follow-up that I just forgot to write down. Mm -hmm. What's up with the traveler pretending to be Lakanta? Yeah, well, the only thing I can think of is that it's sort of like... uh, Anytime you see the Federation have a uh, have a have a duck blind and they're they're observing, yeah, because that always goes really well. Or like uh, like that episode, Homeward. Mm-hmm. Do you want to remind people what Homeward? <laughs> <laughs> uh, rewind uh, about ten minutes. It's the one yeah, with Paul Sorvino. Uh, yeah, going. Yeah. Hey. Um, all right. So the other ending that I had uh, to ask you about was the other ending. How did you feel about the one with the colonists? The one where oh oh we have a solution. We're just going to leave you and hope that everything works out. Yeah, yeah. On the one hand, it's kind of cool because that is what the colonists want. Mm-hmm. Eh, I, I really felt like that we spent the whole episode trying to find a solution and deciding, well, but, or, or not. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have to wonder, would the Federation really be serious about that and just ignore any call for help? Uh, wow. I assume so. Wow. Uh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. that's, of course, the one treaty. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> the Earth-based organization would be fine with. I'll leave you to die. I think, I think we can do that. I think, I think, I think we can actually do that one. Yeah. Well, see, and here's the thing. I, again, I have to ask, in the world of Star Trek, and mm-hmm. we only see a handful of these colonists, mm-hmm. but you've got... Oh, a half a dozen people making a decision like this say, no, we're going to call over our ties with the Federation, with Starfleet. We'll be in this place that is now under the care of this hostile government. You know, right. that's cool. We're all good with this, except for the one guy in the back who's waving his hand saying, no, you know what? I think I think I'm better off going someplace else. You guys, you guys with a starship. All right. Before we cut all ties, can you drop me someplace else, please? Is there a Starbase nearby? 47. I hear that's a great one. Drop me there. Hang on a moment. Did Antora know that the Traveler was pretending to be a member of the tribe? Is that cool? Seriously? Well, here we are. The end of the episode... 
the episode being Journey's End. Curious, John, what you think about this episode. You know, about the messages, the morals, the meanings. Whether you think this episode holds up. So you know what I'm going to do? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? I'm going to ask you those questions. And oh. eh, for a shot of the unusual, I'll start with the one about whether it holds up. I like that. Yeah. I like that question a lot. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a little... So, torn. John... Yeah. Oh, okay. We're we're formally doing this. Do now. you feel as okay. if this episode, this this journey's end, holds up? Mm. I I am a little torn. I so what I don't love is Magic Wesley. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want Wesley to be relatable, and and I also want him to be awesome at his job. Um, but I'm not crazy about him being magic. Hmm. You know, I just, I have a little bit of a problem with that. Um, I also just, you know, generally speaking, I, I take most things that are quote unquote spiritual with a grain of salt. And I'm not usually a fan of stories that are started or resolved by divine revelation or vision quests. Um, but, but at least in this instance with this episode, they were revealing things about character motivations. So, whatever <laughs> fine <laughs> fine okay you know wesley had a dream and he saw his father okay fine fine um and you know and the traveler is just a guy who operates with different science so whatever right um so that that stuff kind of left me vacillating between love it or hate it uh but the political stuff was very star trek though it it felt like the kind of thing you'd run into in the original series, for better or for worse, that we're just going to literally have Native Americans living on a colony somewhere and that we have to go relive some horrible political reality mm-hmm. of what happened to Native Americans on Earth and now just transpose that to outer space in the future. That felt like a very TOS kind of thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that they attacked that and discussed it. Um, I still think the, the resolution is questionable, Mm. but, but again, you end up with situations that are just unavoidably bad situations with unavoidably bad or potentially bad resolutions. Yeah. We won't know until they visit them in 20 more years. We'll, we'll get to that episode. I'm sure (laughs) where they come back 20 years later to, to see what happened. Seems very likely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I think for that alone, just the idea that it felt like we, we were taking on a big issue and, and we were putting these characters into a difficult situation. I'll give it a pass. The, the, the Wesley stuff, I, I'm kind of, you know, it depends on the day you catch me if, if I feel like that was worthwhile or not. Hmm. But, um, but, but the other stuff, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and give it a pass. Um, how about you? Well, what's funny is I'm actually more intrigued by the Wesley stuff than I am uh, the political stuff. And I think it's huh. because we finally have we have resolution with Wesley here. Like you said, mm-hmm. you're not sure how you feel about the resolution in this episode. And I think there's really not a lot of resolution in this episode, except I, I really appreciate the fact that they went ahead and tied up the whole, you know, Wesley special. He's like Mozart thing that the Traveler said way back in season one. Mm-hmm. 
And I also like the fact that Wesley, you know, I mean, look, he was fast track for captain someday. He just was because, you know, he, he was on the Enterprise and he was, he was you know, perfect and he could do all the all the weird physics stuff that nobody else could do and like without even really thinking about it. I mean, mm-hmm. he was drunk in um, ah, that one that's like the other one. It's, it was like the second episode of Next Gen. Um where right, no one has gone now? before. The Naked Now, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was drunk in The Naked Now, and he was still able mm-hmm. to figure that out. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how good he is, right? Mm-hmm. He is destined for greatness in Starfleet. And then one day, he's like, eh, maybe not Starfleet, though. And and yeah. that's, that's, that's a wonderful thing for him to have done, I think. And so for that, I like it. I'm also okay with how insufferable he is at the beginning of the episode, because he's supposed to be. I wish it weren't so obvious, but I do like the fact that, you know, that we get to see him turn into something else as opposed to Ernest from, you know, uh, minute one to minute 48, as he was in Mm. seasons one, two and three, I guess, to, you know, he starts off one thing in this episode. He becomes something completely different by the end of the episode, but he's still the same guy. That's really neat. You can tell by the amount of time that we've spent talking so far, this is an episode with a lot of really meaty ideas. Yeah. as well. And so that's usually enough uh, to kick it into, yes, it works for me, or yes, the episode holds up. I'm still not 100% certain the episode holds up, except that it does give us so much to talk about, and it does deal with something that we introduced literally seven years ago about a mm-hmm. character. As for the resolutions, though, besides Wesley, uh, we leave the colonists to their own devices. That doesn't feel great, but not even like in a private little war. You know, at least in a private little war, which, of course, was the one where we found out that the Klingons had taught, you know, some aliens uh, on some planet how to make weapons. And so they were getting it over on some other aliens who lived on the same planet. Well, actually, they were people who lived on that planet. Only to us would they be aliens. But um, the, uh, the, the ones that Kirk knew were actually sort of taking it on the chin because the Klingons were arming them. And so then we started arming our side. And then basically right. it's, uh, it's, a, it's a metaphor for Vietnam or a parable for Vietnam at the time. We don't even do that here. We're, we're just going to take the Cardassians' word that they're not going to do anything to this colony, this peaceful colony with next to no weapons. But if it turns out the Cardassians are not as good as their word, we're also not going to do anything to help them. So that doesn't really feel like resolution to me. I mean, I mean, the good part of the resolution is we didn't just say, well, no, we know what's good for you, so we're going to go ahead and move you away. Okay, that part's good. They left them to their own devices is good, except they just left them to their own devices. Which it almost feels like, uh, God, that's not my problem anymore. And I also don't like the part where Wes literally is talked into walking away from people who are literally about to die, legitimately in harm's way, physically in harm's way. And he's like, we need to help them. And the traveler's like, no, we don't. And Wes is like, okay. And that's it. Did that- you, you watched uh, Firefly, right? Oh, yeah. I can't remember the episode, but but at the end of one episode, uh, Mal is just getting beat all to hell by whoever the bad guy is in that episode. And and uh, Jane, and I forget who else uh, is there, and they're watching, and uh, and Mal's just getting beat up, and, and Jane says, like, we have to go help. And then uh, whoever it is with him, Zoe, or somebody says, uh, no, 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 this is something the captain has to do for himself. And you hear Mal go, no, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, young Frankenstein as well when they're right. trying to help him up the side of the building and, and right. Dr. Frankenstein is like, no, no, he has to do this on his own and the monster's right. like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't really understand yeah. that. I don't, I, I, I feel like, 
I mean, unless that's just the whole everybody has to find their own path, which really does seem to be the message in this in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I guess you can applaud Starfleet for not for not letting these people or for not forcing these people against their will to do something. I really just feel like they just left them to die, though. And it may happen next week. It may happen next month. It may happen next year. But why is anybody going to listen to Gullivac? Like, yeah, okay, I know we got a planet, and I know we're really, I know we really like moving into planets, especially where there are people we can oppress, but not this one. Yeah. Just because, right. you know, I'm not feeling it on this one. Oh, okay. Okay, Gullivac. What's the EF? So what do you say, Gullivac? <laughs> oh, yeah. I say we take them. <laughs> I'm your Cardassian. I'll be right there. Uh-huh. Yeah. But what about, uh, I think I may have actually hit a couple of the messages with the whole Wesley thing, but uh, tell me what messages you found, sir. Yeah. Well, I mean, we went through that whole discussion, and we didn't even talk about the Cardassian angle. And and I thought that in the end, we got a really classic Star Trek message, and that's Golovac and Picard there on the bridge having to decide that they don't have to fight. Yeah, that is good. It's a great moment. That was such a good moment in this episode. Although, we'll be honest, part of that sort of like rankled me a tiny bit when Gullivac says, I lost two sons in the last war. I don't want to lose my third. Mm-hmm. So if he'd been a single gull. Yeah, right. Then he'd be like, no. Maybe he just kept on going. <laughs> yeah. I'm sending down all of the people from my ship. Oh, I shouldn't have told you that because now you'll be over to my ship. <laughs> sending down half the people from my ship <laughs> that, to shoot up this planet uh, because I don't have any kids and I don't know the true horror of war. I mean, so it's, it's, uh, but that's, yeah, but that, that's, that's nitpicking. Kind of the, that's nitpicking. But, yeah, but, but that, that's sort of the classic problem we run into with empathy, with, with, with suddenly people deciding when a problem hits close to home, then they can have empathy for the situation. Then they can decide that uh, they'd actually care about the, the repercussions of their actions. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, Gull may not have, Gullivec may not have learned that before, but he's, He's learning it now, or he has learned it with the loss of his uh, two other sons. But um, great moment of them on the bridge and and uh, Picard pleading like, we don't have to do this because yeah. we know what the outcome will be. Really nice to see that. Um, we Well, we, we learned that uh, compromise is possible, if not perfect. I mean, I think we can certainly argue about the problems with the compromise in this episode, but they do reach a compromise. And it's a compromise that does not involve uh, being forcibly removed from the planet that these people have chosen. May not be the best answer in the end, but uh, it, it, it seemed to allow them all to leave the negotiating table. Um, and I guess the other one that, that you've hit on that you know resonated with you here was for Wesley you know, to, to follow his passions, even if it's not what he is expected to do or thought was expected of him before. Yeah. That he, he needed to go do that on his own. Yeah. That's that's the one really for mm-hmm. me that resonated. I mean, I agree yours are yours are there and yours are mm-hmm. interesting. But the one that I really take home with this episode is you know, if you've always known what you're gonna do or you've always decided what you're gonna do or you've always known who or what you're gonna be or, mm-hmm. you know, how you're gonna be or any you know, any number of things. It, if you take another look and find out that what you've always known about yourself isn't quite right, or it turns out not to have been true, um, don't be afraid to follow that that new idea. Don't be afraid to entertain that new thought. Don't force yourself into being something that you actually don't want to be just because you always thought you would. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. 
executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Now, Roddenberry does all kinds of things, including podcasts. You may have heard of at least one of them. So you can check out our show as well as Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, and Priority One over at podcast.roddenberry.com. And if you want to help support our show, patreon.com slash mission log is the place to do that. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, Firstborn. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Firstborn. That is the one with Matt Damon. Right? Get it? Born? Born? Is this thing on? And transmission.